It's the Deceptively Fast Podcast, episode 42. Today, I have a very special guest, Ross Tucker, who played in the NFL for a long time, played for five different teams. He is a self-described journeyman. I'm not insulting him by calling him a journeyman. He's a guy that had to fight and scratch and claw his way into the NFL, and then to stay in the NFL, he really had to earn it. He had to earn it, um, and he had to prove himself to a lot of different coaches. I love guys like that because... Along the way, they've learned a whole lot, and we actually talk about that in this interview, uh, but also because of what he's done since he was done playing football. He really just created a career for himself uh, out of working his butt off. He writes um, he writes for The Athletic and a couple different websites. He has a show on Sirius. He has his website, RossTucker.com, and uh, he has the very successful Ross Tucker football podcast. He was one of the first podcasters out there, and we discussed that in there as well, but he's really grown his podcast and his brand and his business. He, he just he works all the time, and he's been one of the most impressive guys I've seen in sports media because he doesn't have a gold jacket. He doesn't have a huge name that he can rely on. He didn't spend a lot of time with one team to where he built a lot of inroads into that community. He's just gone out and done it, and it's it's really impressive. For a guy coming out of Princeton, of all places, and I think maybe the only place in the world where a degree from Princeton hurts you more than it helps you, it might be the NFL. And we talk about that in here because, uh, you know, especially when Ross was coming out, there still weren't a ton of Ivy League players in the NFL. Uh, myself, Marcellus Wiley and Chad Levitt were the first guys to get drafted out of the Ivy League in a while in 1997. And Ross came along a few years later. But he, he has a really good story in this interview about how with some coaches, some very famous coaches, that Princeton pedigree might have actually been a detriment. And I can remember when I came out, there was a kid, I want to say from Brown, maybe the year before, who had been an offensive lineman and had NFL potential, but he wanted to be a doctor. And he told the scouts, eh, I'm going to go to medical school. Screw the NFL. And uh, the, we, I used to have scouts ask me, so do you actually want to play football? And I'd be like, I, I'll show you my transcripts. I don't have great grades. I don't have a lot of, like, I don't have medical school as an option. So I highly encourage you to fo follow Ross Tucker on Twitter um, and subscribe to his podcast, all those things. Or just go to his website, RossTucker.com. You can see every exact thing he has going on. After the interview, I want to get into my impression of Baker Mayfield after seeing him up close and personal this last week and how impressed I was. Uh, I also want to get into my relationship with Bob McNair and uh, who's who's having his memorial service this Friday. I'll be able to I'll be attending that and Simon kind of some of some of the situations surrounding the last year or two of his life that were very complex, as well as a few other things, including a little snippet of a conversation we had with Michael Robinson, excuse me, not Michael Robinson, Craig Robinson, the actor. He gave uh, some really good advice. He inadvertently gave some great advice that I'm trying to follow more closely. It's the Deceptively Fast Podcast. Subscribe on Radio.com, on iTunes, wherever else. Please feel free to leave a review. You don't have to leave a five-star review. I was told by somebody to request that listeners leave a five-star review, like to ask people, hey, leave a five-star review. Frankly, it feels sleazy. If you want to leave a four-star review, fine. If you want to leave a three-star review, that's fine as well. I, I mean, I'd love the five-star review. If you want to leave a two-star or a one-star, I'm gonna let's 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 do this. Don't leave the review. Let's just let's just walk away from each other amicably. 
We, we can still see the kids at Christmas. We'll choke down our emotions and put on a good show of it for the sake of the kids, uh, despite how much we're seething on the inside. And we'll just be gentlemen or gentle ladies about this and, and call it a day, okay? Well, it doesn't have to get ugly here. If you're going to give a one star or a two star, we're probably, uh, you're from Mars, I'm from Venus. It's just not going to work out. I'm just not that into you. You're not that into me. Whichever self-help book you need to get us through this, just walk away. Otherwise, enjoy Ross Tucker and enjoy the rest of the show. And I'm joined now by a guy I've promised you guys for two weeks, but we're both we're both we're both kind of brain challenged former football players, so uh, I just keep forgetting to call and ask him. Ross Tucker, how are you doing, man? Set, I'm doing fantastic, man. Good to be on with you. And really good to be on with you. You know, I grew I grew up listening to Howard Stern. And Howard Stern at one point dubbed himself the king of all media because he was on radio, he had a TV show, he was in a movie. I really think that I'm ready to call you the king of all NFL media because unlike other people who have had to start to do things based on what their bosses are telling them to do, like they're jumping on different platforms, you were the first guy that like seized the opportunity in the podcast world, on radio, in Sirius, you're on television. Could you dub yourself the king of all NFL media? No, I can't take that much credit. I appreciate the kind words. The, the, the truth is, I totally lucked out. I mean, if I, if I did anything smart or had any uh, ingenuity, it was that when I went to the NFL's broadcast boot camp as a player in 2007, I saw that I felt like my competitive edge could be writing, actually. And so I told Peter King that, look, I want to, I want to write, you know, I, you know, I had to write all these papers at Princeton, right? Like I, I want to use that, you know, I wrote 120 pages on title nine and gender equity for my senior thesis. I can sure as heck write a thousand words about why Baker Mayfield's wrong or whatever, right? Whatever the, whatever the different topic is of the week of the day, whatever. So I told Peter King that he loved it. And so I've been writing for like 11 years. Now I write for The Athletic. And so that led to ESPN hiring me away from Sports Illustrated. And when I went to ESPN, they said, hey, we want you to write for us. We'll pay you X per column. But we also want you to host our podcast. And this is Seth, like 2009 or 2010. I literally had no idea what a podcast was. I've never had an iPhone. I've always had a Droid or whatever. Um, so I started doing their podcast and then I did it for three years. The numbers were big because it was ESPN and it was the only podcast out there back in like 2009, 10 and 11. So then like 2012, when I go out on my own, yeah, I was able to bring over a decent percentage of that audience. So I'm really fortunate that ESPN asked me to write for them and asked me, to go ahead and host their podcast because if I tried to start one now, it'd be very, very difficult. But I was able to have an audience right from the beginning kind of by dumb luck and really because I I told Peter King I wanted to write. It seems like it's harder and harder to get paid for the written word now, but do you find is it still one of the best ways to – 
refer to your other work? I mean, you just you get a lot of traction. You get a lot of eyeballs when you write something. It's just hard to get paid for it directly, isn't it? Yes. So I think that's very fair. And now I'm writing for The Athletic, which, you know, you have to be a subscriber to read it. Now, based on all the comments I get, it seems like a lot of people are subscribers. Seems like a lot of people are reading it. But there's some barrier there, right? Because you have to be a subscriber. It's only like a cup of coffee a month. But yeah. I know a lot of people that aren't subscribers, right? So there's a lot of people that, that don't read it. It's funny. I write now as much as anything, Seth. To, for two reasons. Like, number one, it's like, okay, I can document pen to paper how I feel about this topic. Like, because not everybody's always listening to the radio or listening to my podcast or whatever. But anybody, even if they don't have serious XM or they're not a podcast guy, they can always check out your columns. That's number one. Number two, you know, I guess I just feel like everybody has to have something that makes them different. And I wasn't a great player. I, I was a journeyman, five teams, you know, seven years. But what I did do is I, I went to Princeton. I think I'm a pretty smart guy. I had to write all the time, like 20-page papers on Machiavelli or whatever. So I feel like, uh, and I don't know if it's working or not, but I'm efforting at least to have my brand be the, the, uh, the smart former player, right? And which, by the way, you need to stop doing podcasts podcast and you need to get out of the media because the last thing i need is other former ivy league guys <laughs> coming for my brand my brand is i'm the former ivy league guy that's in the nfl media you played so long started so many games made so much money you don't need this dude i need this you gotta stop trying to come up uh, encroach on my gig i like but this is the thing ross i like being local i i really like i enjoy being in a market where i can kind of say what i want to say and I don't have to, because I, I know what happens with you guys. I know what happens with anybody that works on a national platform. You can't say anything without being attacked, like, incredibly viciously, especially if it's about the Saints, if it's about the Seahawks, if it's about a few select groups. Um, I enjoy being able to sit in my own little, like, little insulated world. The other thing, too, is I didn't, I didn't get into it right away like you did um, right when you are done playing. I kind of bounced around trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I, I realized, like, the only thing that I really knew and grew up in was football. And I needed some kind of focus and direction. And, like, I, I was just kind of foundering out there. And I could see where a lot of guys spiral downhill real quickly when they when they don't have that sense of purpose when they're done so for like like i would love to i would love to remove myself from the competition but i frankly need it because it's my best form of therapy <laughs> yeah you sound like a uh you sound almost like a soldier you know with uh ptsd right yeah like kind of uh you know it's therapeutic for you to be able to get i think there's some truth to that to be able to get on the airwaves and be able to talk about your experiences. And I tell people all the time, I think there's this misconception that people want to be, oh, national, national, national. I tell guys all the time, if you played a long time in one area and or you live in that area, there is a tremendous amount of value to being local and, and, and being in a local market like that. You know, for me, I live in central Pennsylvania, you know, Harrisburg, Hershey area, the state capital. It's not a big enough market to be local. And I bounced around so much as a journeyman that I would have loved, I don't care if it was Buffalo or wherever, I would have loved 
if I played, you know, seven, eight years for one team and really had a good, a good, uh, you know, grasp of that market and everybody knew me in that market, I, I would absolutely love that. That just wasn't, that wasn't my journey. And so it makes it a lot harder when you don't have that. Well, there's one thing that I appreciate about you, and it's kind of the same thing you hear from backup quarterbacks at time, is that you guys, you have to think a lot more about it. Like you had to approach your career a different way because you had to make several different teams and you had to fit into several different schemes to do that. And, and in doing that, like you learned a whole lot more about the way things operate. You know, you learned a lot more about different schemes, different coaches. And that's actually one of the one of the funniest stories I've heard you tell was about how when uh, it always seemed like Bill Parcells was more interested in getting your opinion on the stock market and not taking you seriously as a football player because you went to Princeton. Well, he a couple things on that, right? So number one, you know, I remember being next to him on the. So first of all, his first meeting ever. Okay, Parcells had everybody on the team come back to Dallas just for a meeting after he got hired. I don't know if it was February 1st or whatever, but everybody had to come in for a meeting. And the, the funny thing that I remember about it, first of all, I got picked up at the airport by Tyson Walter, who's from Cleveland, went to Ohio State, and he was, you know, living full-time in Dallas. So he picks me up at the airport. And I'll never forget this, Seth. You'll appreciate this. There's an ice storm in Dallas, okay? If you want to see, did you, you know, if you want to see something funny, there were cars in the ditches everywhere. Yeah. I mean, those people, they they would they would bang on the gas and then and then rock the brakes and just go flying. So I'll never forget we were just like laughing. They had no idea how to drive an ice. But then to your point about Parcells, he says Where's the, he shows he has his big book, and he goes, fellas, this here is a compilation of all the penalties from last year. So, something like that, right? And he goes, where's Tucker? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, right here, he's like, what's a compilation? <laughs> I said, uh, coach, it's, uh, it's a bunch of smaller things combined into one, coach. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, that's right. And I knew Tucker would know that. Because he went to Princeton. And the funny part about that, too, Seth, is after the meeting, I had like five guys come to me and be like, dude, thank God he didn't ask me. I had no idea what a compilation was. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. So anyway, so I, you know, I don't think he really liked it. I, I think, um, I think, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he wanted, uh, I think he wanted, Indians, not Chiefs. Yeah. I think he wanted uh, yes men. I think, I think some coaches almost get nervous about guys that are highly educated, if that makes sense, because they don't know. They they, they worry that maybe those guys will question them. Uh -huh. They worry that maybe those guys won't run through a brick wall for them. They might not like that they know that guys like that have other options. I mean, I remember, you know, being on the treadmill next to him one time. And he was asking me about all these different Wall Street guys. You know this guy. You know that guy. And I was like, uh, yeah, I've heard of him. Or no, I don't know him. I mean, I was only my third year in the NFL, and I had never worked on Wall Street. So I didn't know a lot of these guys. <laughs> but he went down the line telling me how he knew every, every Wall Street CEO. I was like, that, that's great, Coach. Like, I didn't say this, but in my head I'm like, that's great, Coach. But what's funny is when I got cut 
believe it. It was in the spring, and it, it was after a mini camp. And I started seven games to finish the season before and graded out the highest O lineman in six of those seven. So for him to cut me after a mini camp, I just couldn't believe it. So I'm trying to find him. I finally find him. He's talking to Deion Sanders. And I'm like, Coach, can I talk to you? And he's like, Deion, hold on a second. And uh, so we go in this room, and he's like, you know, I, I said, you're cutting me without ever even seeing me in pads? He's like, well, here's the thing. I just don't think you're a great fit for what we're going to be doing here. Yeah. And I'm like, well, what, what are we going to be doing here? He's like, well, we're going to throw the ball sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and I had been that bad in one-on-one pass pro. I sucked, Seth, at one-on-one pass pro in practice. I just – I don't know what it was. It's not a realistic drill. It's just not the way it really is. Right. I would get in my head about it. You know, I, I would get in my head like, okay, have a perfect set. Then, but meanwhile, in the game, I would just block the guy. Well, like, you know I what? I never once thought about my technique in the game. Yeah. I just blocked the guy. You know what happens too, and this is the shame about it's it's something that's impossible to project, which is that you can be a guy who's great in training camp because you're good at winning individual battles in preseason games. But there's something different about preparing, going through an entire week of a season and game planning for an opponent, knowing their strengths and weaknesses. And there's so many guys that are just simply better regular season players because their brains help them out more. But it just doesn't flash. And you saw it all the time, I'm sure. Guys that either made the team over you or that looked good in training camp. And then they get to the season and by week six, the coaches are just throwing their hands up in the air because they're not getting that same production out of them. Right, and there are so many guys that are one-on-one wonders, too. Yeah. Right, like they are great in one-on-ones, but then in the game, they they just can't really figure it out. You know, and as offensive linemen, you almost always have help. So to finish the story, I, I say to him, I'm like, okay, fine. And he goes, and, and the next thing he said was, and Ross, I know all the Wall Street CEOs. I can get you a gig, you know, no problem. And I was like, Coach, I went to Princeton. Like, I can get a Wall Street job. I don't want a Wall Street job. You know what I mean? Like, I I want a job in football. You know what's the funny thing about it is, though, Seth? It ended up being one of the best things that ever happened to me. I go to – I get picked up on – I go to on waivers again. I get picked up by Buffalo on waivers. And guess what? I probably would have gotten cut by Dallas at the end of training camp. You know, they had some other good guys. He, you know, he didn't love me. I ended up going to a much better situation in Buffalo where they didn't really have a, a swing inside guy. Mm-hmm. I ended up starting the last five games, and I played well enough that I made the USA Today all-Joe team because I played really well in those games. And as a restricted free agent, Buffalo gave me a three-year extension, decent signing bonus, decent playing time bonus. And I ended up making that my, my, my longest stop. I started like 20 games there or whatever. So none of that would have happened if Parcells hadn't cut me in May. Yeah. So I tell people all this all the time. You know, I'm not going to say that that means everything happens for a reason. But I will say that sometimes things that you believe at the time are a real negative, sometimes positive things can really come out of that. Oh, boy. I'll tell you. I'm fascinated by the failures of successful people. Like I would I would read a book entirely about 
the worst failures of the most successful people. Because when you read biographies, it's amazing how you could pick out a point in so many different like great people's lives where you could say, wow, how are you going to rebound from that? Or how uh, that's going to drive you into alcohol- alcoholism real quick. And even even if you look at like Russell Wilson, Russell Wilson is a failed baseball player, you know, and it's worked out pretty well for him. People's failures are... Uh, yeah, and it makes you... And, 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 yeah, and it, it makes you feel better. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, makes you, it makes you feel like, okay, you know what I mean? Like, okay, so I, I didn't do well on this or whatever, or this this company didn't work. You know, I'm amazed how many entrepreneurs with, like, these billion-dollar companies, it's like the fourth company they started. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, the first three were all failures, and they just kept firing. They just kept playing. It's unbelievable. And the other thing I would tell you, too, about what you were saying earlier, I had nine offensive line coaches. And the thing that's really interesting about that is you never really get a chance to master any one skill or technique. I'm amazed. Like, I don't know. You, you played what? Just Houston and Jacksonville? Yep. And were you pretty much were doing the same thing, two-gapping both places? Uh, no, I I actually rarely two-gapped. There was only one year where we two-gapped. My best success was when I had Dom Capers' system in a 3-4 here in Houston, and it was – it was four years where I got to play one scheme, and it was awesome because it was just perfectly suited to me. And it was it was different in other schemes and with other coaches. I know exactly what you're talking about because um, I got really, really good at his specific techniques that he has, like, for nose tackles and nose tackles alone. And, and that made all the difference in the world. You know, Casey Hampton got to spend his whole career basically playing the same scheme. And, and Dom and Dick LeBeau and those guys did some really cool things for nose tackles to allow you to play aggressively based on formation and everything. And uh, I, I, I'm, I feel really lucky that I got to play for Dom Capers in a 3-4 here in Houston. That is awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you having me, Seth. Let's do this again sometime. i got to get you on mine, too. Oh, sure. Have me on any time. Give me in the – I'm an off-season guest, Russ. You get the big names on during the season. I'll be in off-season. Lock me down for like two hours during the Super Bowl. Sounds awesome, man. Thanks, Seth. All right, buddy. Thanks, man. So there's Ross Tucker, and I told you guys he was awesome. Uh, follow him on Twitter at Ross Tucker NFL. He does a lot of color commentary on the weekends, both college and in the NFL. He did like three games this week. He did the SEC championship game. He did Sunday night football, um, and then I think he did the Monday night radio broadcast too. So like I told you, he's all over the place. And uh, really enjoyed talking to him. He's got kind of a contagious way of speaking. And I find myself emulating him at times unconsciously. And I hope you guys don't hear that now. But please, reach out to him on, t- on Twitter. Tell him uh, at Ross Tucker NFL that you love the show. And he's a great guy. Because he deserves it. He deserves all the positive feedback for everything he does. Now, I want to get into Baker Mayfield a little bit. Because this is a kid that... I wanted so much to dislike, and I continued in those efforts. Every little step along the way where he takes down a hater on social media or he, you know, goes at Colin Coward, as much as I enjoy watching him go at Colin Coward and take Colin Coward down a notch or two, it worries me that he's that out there with all of it because traditionally quarterbacks don't get away with that and also operate well as quarterbacks. I'm trying to keep an open mind about it because this is a completely different generation and maybe guys his age just are much better at compartmentalizing things. Maybe he can have a battle on Twitter and then go on about it. Alex Bregman from the Astros is very good at that. You know, he's one of the best young baseball players in in, uh, in the game and he'll, he'll 
fire off at people on Twitter and it doesn't seem to affect his game at all. I just, I worry like as a father and as an older person now that some of these kids are just being so affected by this and they live in such a world of constant contention on social media because it, it never stops. You know, it used to be you might have drama at high school or drama on your football team, but then you'd go home and it was over and you'd watch, uh, you'd watch All in the Family or you'd watch some other TV show. You'd do your homework, you'd go to bed, and then you'd deal with the drama again the next day. It's just all pervasive now how much it can invade your life. And as a quarterback who it, it sounds like he studies his butt off, it sounds like he does all that work, you just wonder – Man, you're letting a lot of voices into your head, and at some point, you got to learn how to tune those out. But I also acknowledge that guys like Tom Brady have always listened to criticism, and they use it as fuel, and they fight back that way. The problem is that once you start fighting it publicly, um, you know, and I'm not saying you should just lay back and, and let people abuse you, especially if they are lofty media figures, but it's never going to end. It, you, the more you fight the trolls, the more you fight the critics, the more clicks they get based off of you. And you're not getting a commission off of those clicks. You know, if, if Baker Mayfield's going to get public notoriety, I'd like him to get paid off of those clicks, not basically pay Colin Coward's sally, salary by providing those clicks for him. But uh, like I said, I'm open to just thinking maybe these, maybe these kids are different because the part that really impressed me about Baker Mayfield in that game, aside from his play on his field, was how he handled the press conference afterwards. And for whatever you want to say about Baker Mayfield, how he's too out there, he's too honest, he's too brash, he's too brazen, whatever it might be, I'll, I'll get into the football side of it. But I want you to listen to him in the post-game press conference and tell me how often you hear even a veteran quarterback assess his performance this accurately and honestly and really without a hint of defensiveness about it or competitiveness about it I I was really impressed and I don't like to be I don't like to be the press conference critic that bases too much off of it but I think it showed a certain level of maturity so here's Baker Mayfield taking you through the three interceptions that he threw in the first half of that football game first one the one-handed play the pick six you know the guy made a, a great play but we got to have the right depth on our routes and I got to have the ball out earlier so where he you know he didn't have a chance to make that play and so like I said it's the little things when you play a team like that um, the second one we, we got to be able to attack the ball. Uh, you know, once again, ball out earlier on a deep post curl. Uh, you got to fight through it and, and make a play. Yeah, it's going to be a competitive catch, but we got to be able to do that. And then the third one, uh, it's just a dumb throw. That's David should have had the ball there earlier. It was two man. He had a, a he had to, to win down the middle, and he did early. Um, stepped up in the pocket, and yeah, I, that's where the ball should have gone, but not that late. And that's what happens when you, you force something late. Now. Uh, some people listen to that and they pointed out that he called out the receivers to a certain degree. I, I guess so, but I think the important distinction is that it's very even-handed, it's very matter-of-fact, and he's very much taking the blame on it himself. And he talked about the first pick six where he said the receiver had to have the right depth. I'm, I'm not so sure it would have mattered there, and I don't know how much of the film uh, or how much of the replay he had seen there. Uh, what the Texans did, they did a good job, um, and Romeo Cornell, the defensive coordinator, did a very good job of dropping eight guys into coverage, rushing with three, and showing him a lot of looks that confused him a little bit, and it messed up his timing, and he took some shots that he shouldn't have taken. In the first half, uh, the receivers, 
uh, were partly to blame, but very much it was him to blame. But I think the distinction between what he just said right there and when perhaps a guy like Ben Roethlisberger speaks sometimes was, one, didn't call anybody out by name. He was speaking very much in the third person about those receivers. Um, you know, in didn't didn't say a name, didn't point a finger specifically. He just talked about the play itself and what the quarterback needs to do, what the receiver needs to do. There's a company called Afterburner that I have a friend that worked at for a long time. And what they do is they take former fighter pilots and special ops types guys and they go in and they give presentations, and they also do consulting work with companies. And their whole methodology is based on the mission planning and debriefing process that the fighter pilots use um, and the pilots use in the military. And they've transferred that over to use it and work with companies, but they've also used it with football teams. And when the Giants won their last Super Bowl, they were working with Afterburn. It was really cool. I got to go and do the training and see all of it. But every day after practice, Eli Manning would take the entire offense through a debrief in the same way that the military does it. And one of the key elements of their debriefing is that you don't address people by name. You talk about your position. So, like, if I'm a defensive lineman breaking it down, I would say and, – and the other key part of it is that there are there is no rank. Like, there's not any superior. There's not anybody subordinate. Everybody speaks freely and openly about how the mission or the game went. So if I'm a defensive tackle, I might be watching the film, and I might say, um, the, uh, you know, I don't say Tony Brackens needed to do this. I don't say Gary Walker, you were supposed to slant inside. I say the five technique was supposed to slant inside here, and then the three technique loops around. So you get rid of all the personal pronouns. And it kind of dehumanizes it in a good way to where you're just breaking down the X's and O's. And that's what struck me there is that Baker Mayfield was very much calmly breaking down the X's and O's analytically. I don't think a receiver can get upset at that. And I don't think they will because most guys, when they're dealing with you, they just want honesty. They want to succeed as much as you do. They want the team to win as much as you do. And as long as Baker Mayfield is consistent with it, I, that's that's good leadership, in my opinion. That's frank. That's open. That's honest. They probably talked about it on the plane on the way home. And you walk in the door on Monday, and you're already ahead of the process because people have taken accountability for their actions. And I, the other thing that I was really impressed from a leadership ability alone was after Antonio Callaway caught that long ball, <clears throat> and um, uh, and it was stripped. Justin Reed, the safety, stripped the ball at the one yard line. So it was an easy touchdown, but Antonio Callaway had it stripped out of his hands. Baker Mayfield sprinted downfield to give Antonio Callaway a word of encouragement. So this is a guy, remember Colin Coward was complaining about how Baker Mayfield was more concerned about celebrating with the fans than with his teammates. That was just such a load of BS and, and so far away from what I've seen Baker Mayfield to be all about. The kid understands it. Like the kid flat out gets it, and I think his teammates like it. On a football side of things, uh, I think that what you saw in the first half looked very much like a rookie quarterback who was seeing some things he wasn't comfortable with. He's trying to process seeing eight guys in coverage with shifting looks and disguises pre-snap and guys at the line of scrimmage bailing out into coverage, and it confused him. The really 
impressive thing is that he did not get one bit gun shy. And in the second half, he came out and he stretched the field and he took his shots and he wasn't afraid of making mistakes. Now, some of that, maybe over time, that could get beat out of him if he played on a bad team long enough. But that part of it was impressive. Uh, Strictly on the actual X's and O's side, the one thing I've seen that's very good as well is that he doesn't lock on to bad reads. A lot of times young quarterbacks are going to lock onto their first read, lock onto their second read, and kind of wait for a bad read to turn into a good read. He doesn't do that. I think he's got a very good feel and knack for it. The other thing was his escapability. Sometimes guys that have really good escapability in, in college, it doesn't transfer to the NFL because the timing's different, the pocket is different, everything is so much different, not to mention you're dealing with rangy, scary dudes like Jadeveon Clowney and J.J. Watt and Whitney Merciless. Not so easy to get away from those guys. I think he certainly has the athleticism to do it, and he got himself out of a trouble a few times in this game this last week, uh, both with athleticism, I think physical strength when he broke a tackle by Whitney Merciless, and then just having a knack for feeling the pass rush and and that's a lot of it you know Tom Brady has gotten himself out of a lot of trouble not by being one bit athletic but having a good pocket awareness and and pocket mobility he's not mobile as an athlete but he's got good pocket mobility I think Baker Mayfield has that too um I'm I'm really excited about this kid I think he's gonna be a very good quarterback and it's very early to be saying that but when you combine his arm talent with all those intangibles I hate to be the guy that says, well, he just as it. It's not just it. It's a combination of all those things. So kudos to you, Baker Mayfield. I will hopefully not be one of those people you go after on social media someday. Unless you mess up. If you mess up bad off the field, I mean, we got to do what we got to do. You can't be – look – you can't be getting tackled by cops anymore, Baker Mayfield. You were very upfront and open and honest about that throughout the draft process. I genuinely hope you've learned your lesson because if you get tackled by cops again and make a silly sound, I will pounce. So we go from young quarterback Baker Mayfield to 35-year-old quarterback Aaron Rodgers who lost his coach, Mike McCarthy, when he was let go by the Packers after Sunday's game. And obviously uh, a lot has been written about the contentious relationship between Aaron Rodgers and Mike McCarthy. Here's what Aaron Rodgers had to say about that. The frustrating thing, you know, I think this year as much as any other year is, is, uh, you know, some of the stuff that came out about him and I's relationship. Um, And as I told you, you all here many times on Wednesdays, um, you know, we've met more this year than than any other year. Spent a lot of time on Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays and Saturdays. And, you know, a lot of that is about the game plan and about stuff that we like or don't like. But a lot of that's just talking about life. And uh, those are the conversations that I really enjoy with Mike over the years. You know, I think a lot of people probably heard that clip and thought, all right, Aaron, you're just being nice. And obviously we read the articles in Sports Illustrated about how you guys didn't see eye to eye on play calling and you would roll your eyes when he made certain plays and Mike McCarthy could never get into a rhythm as a play caller because Aaron Rodgers was always changing the call at the line of scrimmage. Uh, The story that Aaron Rodgers would get upset that Mike McCarthy, because of his head coaching duties, couldn't be present for all game planning meetings so that they weren't on the same page on game day. I don't disbelieve any of those reports. I think that's all very true. But I think anytime you spend a long time with somebody and the working relationship isn't perfect or it hasn't progressed the way you want to, those though there will be drama. And I think both things can be true. I think 
there could have been a problem with the working relationship between Aaron Rodgers and Mike McCarthy, but I think they could have simultaneously both liked and respected each other. And this is just the way it goes in a working relationship. And I'm sure many of you have had similar circumstances at work or elsewhere where you just you don't see eye to eye with somebody or a relationship runs its course. And I know that sounds cliche, but it flat out happens. Uh, it's interesting to me because I've been critical of, as anybody of Mike McCarthy, but now that he's out there and now that he will have an opportunity to be coach again, um, I don't know if he wants to go back to being an offensive coordinator. I would be really interested in seeing him working with a young quarterback who will call the, you know, who will run the play that's called or call the audible that's the one or two options that he has available to him. But for the most part, he'll go out and execute a game plan. And I also wonder what it'll be like with Mike McCarthy in a different system with different personnel and a different organization around him. Because the Packers went through a whole lot of organizational shuffling at the top with the departure of Ted Thompson. And the even the you know who Brian Gutekunst reports to um, – now versus how it works. It's all just, it's all completely different. Um, and also just kind of the drain in talent over the last few years and their lack of successful drafts in replenishing their receiver cores. It took a toll on everybody. It took a toll on Aaron Rodgers. It took a toll on Mike McCarthy. So Mike McCarthy, perhaps with a young quarterback like a Baker Mayfield or somebody else that he can mold. I'd be very interested and actually kind of optimistic. And I hope that doesn't sound like I'm being hypocritical because I've been critical of Mike McCarthy, but I think that some coaches, some coaches are very good at bringing players along. And when it comes to getting that player to the absolute upper echelon, uh, I don't know. I don't know how many guys are actually really good at that. You know, Bruce Arians, Bruce Arians was that quarterback whisperer, perhaps. He also had the benefit of working with some really good quarterbacks. It's not like Ben Roethlisberger was a bad quarterback when Bruce Arians first got a hold of him, but he certainly helped him take that game, take his game to the next level. So uh, it'll be a fun offseason to see. Uh, I, I've read different pieces by different former GMs who disagree about whether it was appropriate to fire him before the end of the season. And Tony Dungy, of course, on Sunday night, thought it was just uh, deplorable that they had fired a man who had won a Super Bowl. I mean, how many years ago was that now? Uh, 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 <laughs> we're looking at it 10 years ago he won a Super Bowl. Fine. Uh, I, I suppose Tony Dungy never fired a player in the middle of the season. I suppose he never let a veteran player go. These things happen, Tony Dungy. And, and the coach is still getting paid. This is what drives me crazy when coaches – Talk about what a shame it is that other coaches get fired. You guys get paid. You're one of the only positions in America where you get fired and keep getting paid after you're done. And do you really think do you really think Mike McCarthy deserves the the I just the the embarrassment of gutting it out through that last month, knowing his dead man walking? Personally, I don't know whether Mike McCarthy would rather have been executed then or executed four weeks, five weeks into the future. I don't see what a, what's the big deal about it. Uh, Andrew Brandt, who's on Ross Tucker's podcast, said that it allows the organization to get moving on their coaching search where they can do it out in the open. They're not allowed to interview anybody until they're done with their jobs. Now, that's in the NFL. The college coaches is a different deal. Uh, I saw one GM saw something diamond. Is it Jeff Diamond? 
um, say that that's it's nonsense that they can get started any earlier on their coaching search because they can't interview anybody. There's a difference between having to doing having to do things in quiet versus having being able to do things publicly. I think not to mention just uh, the the two faced element that goes along with knowing you're going to fire somebody and seeing them every day in the office and having to keep up that charade. Uh, I just, I I don't see how that's respectful to somebody. It always ends up feeling like a mob movie where a player or a coach knows he's going to get fired. The other guy knows that he's going to fire him and you just smile and go to dinner with them and do all these other things. It feels disingenuous. So I don't see like, I don't see how there's any less honor in firing him now versus firing him later. You know, maybe it gives McCarthy a little time to get himself in shape, uh, get himself prettied up for the interview process, make himself look more professional. That's what I'm I'm trying to take preemptive action on the holidays by starting my diet today instead of on January 1st. Uh, I'm inspired by Landry Locker, the producer of the Midday Show at Sports Radio 610, who has this tactic. He almost has like a December 1st resolution instead of a January 1st resolution, a New Year's resolution. So I'm doing keto. Look, real brief summary. I'm sure you've heard of keto. It's something that's kind of related to paleo or a lot of paleo can be keto. Your local CrossFit dude is probably doing it. It's low carb. You, you, You eat very few carbs. Your body switches over to burning fat predominantly instead of sugar. And the one big thing, despite all the various claims that people make about it, in my opinion, and based on things that I've read from very smart people, people much smarter than myself, is that ultimately the biggest benefit of keto or anything else is that it's an appetite suppressant. You, you don't crave sugar. You don't crave sweets. You don't have food cravings nearly as much as you used to, which gives you a lot more control over your diet. For me, frankly, it's always been easier to control my, my binging because um, I've got a tendency to binge when I'm on a low-carb diet. The biggest problem, though, is that I have a really hard time exercising well on a low-carb diet. I get dizzy. I get grumpy. I get angry. And supposedly over time, your body adjusts to that. I've never been patient enough to deal with it before, particularly because I'll tend to snap at people. It's happened on the radio a couple times. I'll be like three days into keto, and all of a sudden I flip out on Mike Meltzer for something really, really simple. Like I don't like that he's using an advanced stat or something because it's dorky and it's bad for radio, and people don't want to hear it. 3% of the audience wants to hear about your advanced stats. I think it's interesting, but most of the audience doesn't want to hear it. They want to be entertained, so I flip out. And that's no good for anybody. I, I'm going to try to ease my way into it this time and slowly limit my carb consumption. It's been – the best thing about it is that your weight comes off very quickly. It, anytime you go low carb, every little bit of glycogen in your body holds on to a few molecules of water. And that when you get rid of all that glycogen, which is what happens when you get rid of your carbohydrates, the water flushes out of your system too. Have you actually lost body fat? No, but I don't care because you know what happens? Your clothes fit better. The other little dirty secret I know that I, I'm not recommending this, but if what your concern is is like fitting into a suit or something, and maybe it's a suit you haven't worn in a while and you're like 10 or 15 pounds heavier than you used to be, you got a wedding coming up in three weeks, stop lifting weights. If you're lifting weights, just stop lifting weights. If the muscle will come back quickly don't freak out here you're not turning into a you're not turning into an anorexic or anything like that just stop lifting weights go on a low carb diet cut out all the sodium because you'll lose a little bit more water weight there if you're holding on to any and uh, you'll fit into your suit but over time 
theoretically with a low carb diet, you, you get to your goal weight and then maybe you moderate your carbs depending on activity level. There's nothing magical about it. It's not the only thing you should be doing. You're not going to get diabetes if you don't do it because uh, this is the other thing that happens. People will want to do a keto diet because they'll, they'll see and they'll read that, oh, wow, if you eat a shitload of sugar – you end up with diabetes. So I'll eat no sugar at all and I'll uh, and it improves your insulin resistance and that's all true, but it's a little bit of overkill done by people that have a tendency to to go way too far with things uh, when they when they do their exercise regimen. I personally like it. I'm going to I'm going to see how long I can stick with it this time and I'm going to curb back my workouts until I'm done. Other thing going on personally is I will be going to Bob McNair's memorial service on Friday. It's a celebration of his life and it's going to be at Energy Stadium. Um, and the last time I talked to you guys about Bob McNair, it was immediately after he died. And obviously with Bob McNair, the last year or two of his life, there was a whole lot of controversy surrounding him because of the national anthem, um, the, the, the protest against police brutality by players kneeling during the national anthem, <clears throat> all uh, sparked by Colin Ka- Kaepernick, obviously, uh, as, as well as a few other comments that he made, some of which that I think were misconstrued, some of which that, frankly, were insensitive or just flat out uh, uh, not the things to say. Um, I, I've talked to a lot of players about this, and guys that I know, guys that I trust, guys that aren't reactionary or inflammatory by any stretch of the imagination – um, and, and the most I'll say right this moment, and uh, I'll say more about it as we get down the road, it's really something that I think I, I'm going to have to write down at some point more than speak into a microphone, <clears throat> um, is that it was a very complex situation, and a lot of African-American players that I played with and talked to that played for Bob McNair recognized that it was a very complex situation in that you had a person who had made some comments and, um, you know, he addressed the team after Obama won the election and a lot of guys had an issue with exactly the tone that he took in that speech. Um, but there are also guys that recognize that he did a lot of things to help out, uh, kids and younger people in African American communities, you know, and in low income areas. And he did a lot of good for a lot of people and that it's not always so simple. And the, the thing I always encourage people to think about is think about your grandparents and think about exactly maybe some of uh, the, some of the way they operate, some of the things they say, your great-grandparents especially, and was it as simple as like, well, nope, this person's just a bad person and this person's a good person? Of course not. It's, it's never that simple. Um, and Bob McNair was a guy who was always very, very good to me personally, and I've tried to learn and understand exactly what the experience of everybody else was on teams that I played on. And I've learned and listened and tried to learn more about all the backgrounds and the upbringings of guys <clears throat> that I played with. And they're, they're vastly divergent, of course, and everybody uh, has a different story to tell. So that's where I am with that. Like I'm going to the memorial service and I, I, very much respect Bob McNair and everything he accomplished in his life. And I think he's a, a hell of a family man, was a hell of a family man. The one thing that I really regret was that, uh, you know, in the midst of all that controversy, he was going through multiple cancer treatments. And I don't, I don't know how much that may have affected his judgment with some of the things he was saying. And it's never, 
it's never you know easy to just throw that up as an excuse for somebody um but i think that the last several years perhaps were different than earlier in his life and i also know that uh, you know i one day on the radio i i just made what i thought was an innocuous joke when somebody was cut from a team and uh, it was a it was a african american player and I very much, I thought, jokingly said, well, the Texans will have to check their racial policy um, because obviously they obviously they have no issue hiring black football players. I thought it was plainly, obviously sarcastic. Um, but Bob McNair either heard it or somebody told him I said that, and uh, it upset him. It, has, it upset him a lot. And uh, we sent a recording to him um, and, and tried to explain that, look, on, on that day specifically, I was actually defending him in one aspect of some of the things that were going on, uh, you know, and I think I, I defended him on some things and I criticized him on others, but on that day especially, it was very clearly a joke given the context of what we were talking about, but I ended up talking to him on the phone uh, for a good spell about it, and I don't, I don't think I ever convinced him that... I was joking, um, and it was partly because I think there was just so much going on, uh, and there was so much turmoil, and he was actually on his way out of a cancer treatment while I was talking to him on the phone. Um, so he was. this is something that he heard on the radio on his way into a cancer treatment and then was talking with me uh, about on the phone after his cancer treatment. So uh, I, I, wish, I wish that had never happened, um, and I wish that – that wasn't where our relationship was when when he passed away but uh but that's that's where it was and you know the only thing i guess i can do is is try to move on and learn from that and and i'm trying to be more open and honest with people um especially when it comes to things like this i've actually since since bob mcnair has passed away i've probably had three or four honest and frank well actually let me count this i've had three honest and frank and open conversations with people about just issues that have been long simmering and that were creating issues uh in in relationships not with my wife or anything that's all cool my wife my wife i'm just lucky as hell my wife super cool about all my flaws she, she know i know exactly what my flaws are uh she's not ashamed or bashful about telling me what my flaws are and it works out really well in terms of some of my other relationships with people uh, it's not always as rosy. So uh, that's that's how I'm trying to use that experience and move forward with it. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to on Friday, I'm sure, hearing some uh, hearing some people whose lives he's touched and affected. And, uh, you know, I, it's, it's not anything I'm going to shy away from moving on into the future. But I think we do need to recognize. And, and that's, that's the really cool thing is I talk to a lot of former teammates and uh and guys that weren't teammates but guys that played for the Texans um is just the acknowledgement that not everything you see on Twitter or read on the internet um th those extremes aren't what 
people have to be and how they have to believe uh, when they have conversations about things and that people can recognize nuance in situations and they can recognize complexity in human character. So there we go. Got a little too deep and heavy there for me for, for the sake of the deceptively fast podcast. Uh, but tomorrow we'll have Michael Lombardi. We'll have Sean Pendergast probably on Friday. So I got, I got three. I will have three to you this week. Thinking about trying to make next Tuesday and every Tuesday after the fitness day. So I'll have a I'll have some kind of keto expert on for you. I'll have some kind of ketogenesis expert on for you. Brian Peters, who plays for the Texans, is actually uh, probably one of the most strictly keto guys I've seen compete at a high level. Because like I said, it's very hard to exercise with intensity unless you really commit yourself to it uh, on this diet. And I know a lot of people have. It's just interesting at the highest levels, at the very highest levels of sport, it's less, it's much less common than somebody that just goes and works out at the gym for an hour a day. So thanks for listening, everybody. Leave a review. Uh, subscribe on iTunes or Radio.com or any of those other platforms that we're on. And everybody have a great day and rest of your week.